welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we have a guest who you've heard from before, and we just realized it was almost two years ago, which is bizarre. It's um, wild. Yeah. Can you reintroduce yourself to the listeners? Okay. Hi, I'm Tarek. But like, uh, I'm known as Titi, PhD candidate uh, of anthropology at UC Irvine, Egyptian anthropologist, queer activist writer yeah that's pretty much it and i'm so glad to be with you guys today when was so we recorded at the beginning of the pandemic right yes i think it was around april or may maybe 2020 god it's scary to think it's almost two years that we're almost yeah. two years in um yeah so are you still you're still in california right i still in california i'm still in california but i actually went back to egypt from june 2020 and i just came back in september uh, last September. So I spent like 14 months in Egypt. I was doing my field work there, but mostly I definitely went back after Sara Hegazi left our world because I felt that I wanted to be with my friends and my community there. Wasn't the smartest decision though, which is a long story. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I keep going back and forth, but now like I'm, I'm back in California and I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm not going back to Egypt for like a long while. Like, I need a serious break from Egypt. What made you decide to leave Egypt um, Um, Okay. Well, basically, I think, like, to be honest, and I'm not sure if these are observations that have something to do with me being an activist or being an anthropologist or being just someone who's been living and working there, but um, Egypt of now is extremely complicated and different in terms of basically the military regime is definitely penetrating almost all like the industries and the country has been playing a major role in like the production of new uh, citizenship discourses, who counts as a good Egyptian, who doesn't count. The state is now a broker, the state is now like a businessman, the state is doing so many things. And um, I think what scares me is how Sisi as like a political figure is gaining popularity more and more, even among progressive circles, even among activist circles, even among queer circles. And the rise of or like the emergence of nationalist discourses in Egypt is also a very scary thing. Of course, in addition to like the systematic homophobia and transphobia, but also like the I'm afraid that like Egypt is is witnessing at this moment like different levels and forms of societal violence that I'm scared that they would even get that they would get worse. As much as you can say, why do you feel that uh, CC is gaining popularity even in progressive circles now? Uh, because I felt more alienated than I used to feel before. Like, uh, sorry, I mean, like, do do you think there's like, what do you think is behind that? Like, why is it? happening because basically here's because basically here's the thing i feel like cc is presenting militarization with american spices like i'm quite sure that in a way and i know that this i promise it's not a conspiracy theory it's just some assumption but like Mm -hmm. definitely there's something about egyptian foreign politics that looks and feels and sounds very american in the sense of how women rights how minority minorities rights how different uh 
topics are being addressed by the state and how the state is presenting itself as a defender of these rights or like as a progressive force in terms of Islam, like Islamic reform or um, or like a progressive discourse, a progressive Islam, Islamic discourse. And at the same time, definitely with Egypt now becoming a transnational hub for business for businesses and for, for transnational corporates, new markets are opening. This means new job opportunities for many people. This means relative independence from family. So in a way, and, and in a way things really look good. Like if you go to Egypt now, it is really different. Every couple of days, I think I would be in a cab or in an Uber and I would see a new bridge that is being constructed. And also like, which is something that people usually do not like to think of, but I'm also scared by the, I don't know if this is a word that we can use in this context, but I feel like Egypt has been expanding its imperial (laughs) uh, involvement in the region. Like I remember one day I was in a cab and I heard on the radio, like some radio host is speaking about how Egypt is now going to help Iraq build a new administrative capital like the one in Egypt. And I think in return, we will have like subsidized rates of petroleum, I think. And the Egypt's rule in Lebanon, Egypt's rule like in different Arab countries and the, the military bases that are, yeah, that CC is investing and it's a scary moment for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean when it, it just has like US energy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it may not be like direct one-for-one imperialism, but definitely US energy. It's like, yeah, let's just, you know, stick our troops in other countries, you know, use that as a negotiating point, use it to build goodwill, because that's that's how we used to roll or still roll. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, definitely the quote-unquote global war on terror which I'm not saying that it's not true because here's the thing, ISIS exists, terrorism exists, and as queer people, it for me, it means so much to be aware of the double bind that we have to struggle with here. Like we know, of course, that terrorism exists. We know that these terrorist uh, uh, discourses exist, but at the same time, we know very well how Arab regimes use such causes to exploit human rights situation and this is exactly what is happening but even like now that like because the u.s has i think at some point lifted or like threatened to lift the military support that it gives to egypt now egypt is working on its poor human rights record records so yeah things are changing and here's the thing what i'm trying to say is what we're what is happening now in Egypt politically is a different political context that looks and feels familiar, but I feel like it's the it's one of the worst moments in our contemporary history that a military that a regime that basically has blood on its hands from massacres is now gaining this local, regional, and international popularity, and everyone seems. Not everyone, of course, I'm not saying this, because I, there are so many people, of course, that are fighting against this on the ground, but it's just sad to see how many people seem to forget the numbers of 
people who lose their lives because of this regime and because of its violence. How quick the like image turnaround, it's, it's yeah, almost terrifying to me. Not just Egypt, yeah. like a lot of countries can turn from like actively persecuting people to having like a, a shiny human rights mask. Um, people buy it so quickly. It's scary how quickly propaganda works instantly. And how, I mean, the most recent comparable examples I can think of are like the Assad regime, like during the beginning of the Civil War, when they were like trying to present themselves as the Western alternative to terrorism. And then there's also um, Turkey's uh, Erdogan, who, you know, is basically playing, you know, the strongman, and, but everyone, and everyone seems to be okay with it, but it's also like no one for no one seems to mind what he does to the Kurds, you know. So it's it's not a what I'm trying to say is it's it's not without a model that other people are similarly running, and both of those players are also trying to expand their military presence as well. True, but uh, and I, true, and I, and I can't agree more. But I think also, trust me, this is not by any means trying to give Egypt more credit. But what I'm just trying to say is, in the case of Egypt, I think it's worse than Syria and many other countries in terms of the power and the resources that this regime and this country and this state has. We are speaking of a military that is one of the strongest or like one of the most established militaries in the region since the 19th century. We are speaking about Abdel Nasser's deep state and its remnants, its corrupted roots that are still producing this type of violence. So this is why I'm terrified by pan-Arabism, nationalist discourses in Egypt, and Egypt being glorified in a way as like, you know, the Sisi story being glorified as the person who would bring Arabs again, like strong again, in the face of like the world. It's just scary. As a queer person, this person, Sisi is definitely becoming a pharaoh or like Khidewi or like, you know, a new Muhammad Ali in a way. And he's definitely becoming unstoppable. And here's the thing. I think what I'm trying to say from a critical queer perspective is that we don't have a black and white situation here. We have issues that are at a stake. We have like a regime that is really trying to do improvements because like there are definitely improvements in terms of like women's rights. Uh, but at the same time, the question is, to what extent are you okay with this being part and parcel of a military state? Mm -hmm. A military state that is authoritative, that is run by a dictator, that, is, that has basically killed people with its own hands. I feel like complicity is the underestimated form of violence in our, in our context. This may or may not be relevant, but do you think that the pandemic has like impacted the rise of this nationalist politics? Of um, course, of course, like of course, because Egypt, because here's the thing, like, I just like, your question actually reminded me of a conversation that I had like with a young, um, a young Coptic queer um, guy who was renting a room in my house and kind of when I was there, and he comes from Upper Egypt. And I remember that one day we were talking and I was like, I don't know. Because here's the thing, because of so many traumas and so many things, I was scared to leave my house at some point, to be honest. And I was like, do you know why Egypt feels 
why it feels as if we are in a state of war. And he was like, what well, we are in war. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, this is Harbistanzev. I don't know what Istanzev is in English, but like, this is basically Egypt. Okay. Egyptian television has been using a new hashtag for like almost a year now, which is the new Republic. So let's put this here. Egypt's performance in the face of COVID compared to many other countries, definitely, definitely, definitely worked in favor of the regime. But here's the thing on the other side. Yes, official numbers on death in terms of COVID in Egypt are not this big compared to other countries, maybe. But there are two things that you need to take to pay attention to in relation to Egypt. One, many people didn't even go to hospitals. So many people didn't even, were not even documented. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in our Arab world, we have trust issues with state-sponsored reports, mm -hmm. especially coming, yeah, especially when doctors were arrested in Egypt for criticizing the government's response to COVID in the beginning. Number two, many Egyptians who died in the last two years, maybe have not died directly from COVID, but they have definitely died from other chronic diseases that are basically also the results of mm -hmm. all the corruption, all the pollution and like all the poisoning. So this is, and, and like the failed medical infrastructure. So this is a sign. The fact that people were in a lockdown definitely enabled a military state like Egypt to play the role of the guardian to, it was basically, how can I say it? It's like you give a dictator his most favorite game, a country where he can tell people where, when to sleep and when to leave their houses. So it's definitely, I, I, and I'm, I don't mean to like simplify in like any like reductionist way. I'm just saying that definitely this state benefited from the lockdown and from yeah. the fact that it could control people's presence and the public sphere. Yeah, it's a weird bind because on one hand, it's not like I support like anti-vax and anti-masking movements that are like, oh no, the government can't tell me what to do because like, no, that's actually beneficial, but it, it can be weaponized, right? Like, yes, there are things that the government needs to do that are like more authoritative during a pandemic um, that are necessary, but it's also true that it, it makes it so much easier to take that power and stick with it, right? Because it because the other people will give them the benefit of the doubt. It's like, well, they were just trying to help everyone by keeping us safe. And with a global pandemic that everyone acknowledges at this point, like it's a it's a pretty easy line to go with, especially if you do not want to consider the fact that maybe this military regime isn't good for you in the long term or is actively harming you. But it's like between considering that and that sort of like dread and despair that would invoke and saying, oh, well, they're just they're just being a little rough, but they're doing what's best for now. It's an easy argument to take, even when you're like presented with the awful facts and you're like, but it, it's just that it's easy to doubt yourself. It's definitely easy to know it yourself, Eddie. Like, thank you so much for saying this. Yeah, I can't agree more. Yeah, because sometimes it's easier in a way to just make peace with the fact that the state is an extension of the father figure in a way that they know what is best for you. They might, they might not be 
the coolest or whatever it will by the end of the day they deliver <laughs> by the end of the day they make you look good in front of other people which is very weird like i think one of the things that i definitely spent lots of time reflecting on when i was in egypt is how the private sphere is very also like underestimated as a main factor in shaping the egyptian political and public spheres because by the end of the day we are speaking about a country where its public sphere has been militarized and has been repressed throughout the last like 30 something years like on and off so it is very interesting to see how like um like i think i made up not made up one day like I think I could summarize this in a sentence that made sense to me in terms of connecting violence and private sphere to violence and the public sphere to patriarchy which is it seems that violence in in a country like Egypt is more of like a family business mm. and by this it's like there is always a sort of mutual agreement between the state and between the main representative like The, between the the representatives of the state within the domestic sphere within biological families within the private sphere that like i respect what you are doing as long as you are complicit with what i'm doing so you see like patriarchy um it is a very dynamic it's a very dynamic patriarchy in a sense that the state is borrowing from abusive fathers and abusive fathers are borrowing from the state I think this is the best way I could put it in. like I could That's a really good analogy. Thank you. Part of it is no dictator or no you know nationalist leader rules alone. They have to keep specific people who are helping them out and uh ensuring that they can rule happy. And a lot of the times these are yes family structures because it ensures continuity of power. So when you can keep that that sort of structure in place it's very easy to keep in place it's more reliable than elected representatives in a lot of ways because you know the next elected representative you don't know who they're going to be whereas um you know a powerful family's uh you know designated heir you've seen them grow up you're pr- you've probably gone to the same schools and parties as them you know who they are long before they get into power yeah there's that sense um, of loyalty and continuity and and yeah. for an autocratic state where they can where they don't have to consult with people and they don't have to worry about public opinion as much they just have to know that they're keeping their keys to power happy and so long as they do that they know what they can get away with and what they can do whereas like here you know we we would have to wait for you know congress or the cdc to form their opinion to publish their opinion for that opinion to be politically accepted and it's and it's like 6 months down the line and that opinion no longer matters whereas in an autocratic state they could get that done quickly that's sort of like the upside to it but the downside to it is if they get it wrong or if they do not want to acknowledge facts or acknowledge failures then it goes catastrophically wrong and it isn't the people in charge and power who suffer because of that yeah and actually what you're saying and it makes me think that i feel that since i came back from egypt and also like because of so many things that happened when i was there in relation to family 
and like a homophobic family of course like after like my mom died I think what I'm trying to say is to be honest I became more angry and queer in the sense that for me biological families are as dangerous as the state as authoritative state and I feel like biological families seem to be the under-theorized, most failed project of the modern world. Especially mainly, like, that proved, yeah, that proved its failure and its corruption, at least throughout the last century. And I feel like there is no, in my opinion, and I might sound pessimistic, but I feel like there is no way a progressive queer movement could emerge if we do not start acknowledging family structures for what they are as negotiators of sexuality, as gatekeepers and controllers and negotiators of sexuality, gender, uh, capital. The state as a political construction, I think, gains its power from the family and family gains its power from the state. And they both are as guilty, in my opinion, when it comes to killing queer people and when it comes to killing everyone who dares to be different from the norm. And it's not only like in terms of sexual orientations or gender identities, and it's not killing like in the literal sense, but it's like, to be honest, can I use the F word in the podcast? Like seriously, honestly, I don't know why anyone should give a fuck anymore about like a biological family. (laughs) And I'm saying this was on the, like with pain. I'm not saying this as if like, oh, I don't want family anymore, but it's just to see that the damage, the everyday damage that our families left in us and how it resonates with violence, with everyday violence from the state and how like they get confused, they feed each other. Yeah, it's interesting because before we start recording, we were talking about toxic family that Ellie is dealing with. I don't know if you want to get any more specific, but, um, and I think like the desire of the family to control like sexuality or control like how you live your life that yeah it's just interesting um and it does kind of feel like a similar conversation well here's what's going on basically (laughs) one of my aunts uh has always had a problem with me ever since i came out and since i don't put up with her verbal abuse and because of that i'm basically just invited to anything she's in charge with you know, we can be in the same room together, but if she's running it, I'm not invited, you know? But to keep the peace, because my mom loves her sister and everyone else wants to, you know, have their sister or have their mom involved in these things, they tolerate this sort of abusive behavior. They do it to keep the peace. They don't want to upset things. They don't want to have to deal with the fallout of like having to tell her to stop. And I feel like that's similar to the autocratic state argument is like, Everyone wants to keep the peace because they feel like the chaos and the anarchy would be so much worse than anything that would result from bringing up the problems, from pointing out that maybe that all this authority vested in one group of people, one person is extremely bad and dangerous. And that's, you know, in Egypt's case, when there is something progressive or something good done, they have to understand that anything that the state grants them, they can equally and as quickly take away. First, I'm so sorry, Ellie, that you had to go through this. And I'm really sorry. This sucks. This definitely sucks. And there's a sentence. It's, it's, it's old news at this point. And it's just, yeah, like you said a sentence that I want actually to stress on, which is 
it is scary to see this power vested in one person. And it is interesting how we can apply this on a state and how we can apply this on a family. What makes a hatred a man uh, responsible for raising children and what makes a woman responsible for raising the children, for example, and like, but this is a different story. I'm becoming more queer also in the sense that when it I mean, if we want to go into this, I mean, this is like an entire feminist discussion that's been going on for decades. So, I mean, I think also what stood out, sorry, I, I don't interrupt too much, but just uh, something Ellie, you kept saying was uh, the, the idea of keeping the peace and don't disturb the peace. And right. And yes. that's, that's like that's also political. like that's a charge disturbing the peace is a charge and that's what they threaten you at with like every protest and i think that's like a vague law that's in a lot of different constitutions in a lot of different places and who even knows what it means but it's it's the idea of you need to keep this peace but no one says that the this peace is actually violent and that's true in domestic settings and that's true in societal settings and in a state yeah yeah, I mean, we'll, oh, we'll take the terror that we know as opposed to the consequences that we do not. Yeah, and it's like a family is like a state in the sense that a family provides empowerment in a way, provides protection, provides sheltering, provides nurturing, and in return, you lose your agency in the process to become a part of this family. Uh, they have access to restricting your mobility, controlling your sexuality, and again, it's, it's not like I wish things were black and white, but like, I have to be completely honest here why I'm saying this or like where this is coming from. Um, I'm 36 years old and I always used to think of myself as a smart person, but after my mom died in March, I have been struggling since then with depression, with complicated grief, and was finally realizing that the, the person that I love more than anything in my life, my mom, was extremely abusive, manipulative, and no matter what I did, by the end of the day, not only that she didn't accept me, but she died without even a confrontation. And it's like, and then since then, it's like fine, suddenly a whole world collapsing and you start seeing things for the way they are in a way. And honestly, I feel so much pain and anger for every queer person who has, who gets to feel at some point in their life that maybe, maybe if they do something, if they say something, if they make some compromise, they will finally be accepted and loved. I mean, what the fuck and why? I'm so sorry. That That's a very specific type of grief. Losing someone and not having reached a point of any sort of reconciliation, not for lack of trying on your end but like lack of trying on their end yeah thank you Alia but also like that made me think okay my case might be extreme in a way because it's like I grew up in this small town small big family big extended family they are very religious they are very conservative but I mean like it was very shockingly interesting when my therapist was an Egyptian mom by the end of the day told me after my mom died, the person who was in controlling you is finally gone. It's like a rebirth for you. Start seeing it as a liberation moment. Not to make it about me, this made me think how many Arab and Egyptian queer people get to hear this from someone, 
from someone who tells them it is not your problem that this mother or father was bad to you. You need to save yourself. We actually end up appreciating our families like for not being as hateful as other families, for not being as violent as us as other families. But by the end of the day, if we start treating queerness as a starting point, not as the end goal, then I'm sorry, I need someone to pay it, to make it up to me and to millions of queer kids to know out like sent decades who had to live with the psychological damage of not being loved, of not feeling accepted. So not to make it about victimization, what I'm trying to say is from a position of power, I'm, I believe now more and more in a chosen families, and I'm interested in finding another word, but like a chosen in the sense that this world is structured in a very heteronormative way that its existence means the killing of queer people. Children as symbols of innocence have become scary symbols, in my opinion, because they represent a future that whose prize is killing queer people, killing queer people as an idea by making them part of a system that they would never be part of because it's not about acceptance. It is about the large, the amazing, infinite spectrums of gender identities and sexual orientations that have been aborted for decades by structural violence and erasal of any knowledge on queer existence. So we've been victimized throughout the history and treated as patients who finally, like, you know, at some point they reach acceptance and they become almost a straight. <laughs> I don't give a fuck about being almost a straight. Like, I, I really don't. I want a queer world. To bring it back to our conversation, and this is the thing that I also wanted to talk about, these reflections on families and on like what it means to be a queer person having, having to struggle with this. Because I'm, I've always been obsessed with knowledge being out there for everyone and like for queer people to share these experiences. And because I, I kind of know that we don't get to share these experiences this made me think of an art project that I'm about to start, like, or like I actually started working on. It's a book. It's supposed to be like a comic book in a way um, that I'm happy to like to share with you news about. And happy is not the right word for such a book with such a title. Um, so it's, it's called 36 Love Letters to My Dead Abusive Mother. And... Um, yeah, so, and it's basically, yeah, it's 36 letters and, and each letter represents like a um, set of events or like a year in my life. And it's basically a way of me telling, doing the confrontation that didn't happen, but also reclaiming my narrative that like, okay, so mom, here are 36 years of my life that you thought you knew this about me. But here's actually who I was and here's what I did. And I love the title because it's shocking, unapologetic. And this is exactly how I want this. Yeah, I love that because it's it's like, it's all true, right? Like you can love someone and recognize that they were an abuser, right? Like it's, it's, it's just the truth. And sometimes we don't want to admit that. Yeah, but again, like, yes, it is personal, but at the same time, and I really mean it, 
I just want to daily month. If I want this, if I want to deliver anything through this book, this book or this project, project is just to de-romanticize de our families and our obsession mm -hmm. with them accepting us, because it just kills me and hurts me how much effort and labor queer people have to exert in this world just to live. Yeah, and a lot of the type of love that we get to feel is like laced with toxicity and yeah. I think yeah that that title is really powerful thank you so much when is this project coming out or when when can people find it <laughs> um i started writing actually towards the end of last year i think it would be out in 22 in 2022 uh i'm still not sure about how i want to do this i think it might be an online book and it might be the first publication of my art studio that I finally also want to start. House of Titi, Queerkin, Queer Arts. And which is, yeah, which is like a dream that I've been having for so many years uh, to create this kind of like network of queer artists and activists and, and knowledge and culture producers coming together or like producing art and knowledge from a queer perspective on almost everything. Uh, so it's not only like, you know, the gay people speak about the gay issues so that the straight people could be educated. I don't give a fuck about just educating them. Uh, no, it's a queer universe in a way. So this book hopefully should be one of the very first publications of, uh, of our House of Titi. And I also like just about to start uh, seeking funds for a documentary that I've been filming between Egypt and the U.S. Fortunate Tales was an was a U instead of O. Uh, the pet friends who saved my best friends. Basically, it's a documentary about queer about queer individuals' mental illness and how dogs and cats have become part and parcel of the chosen families of queer people and their everyday struggles against depression and anxiety, especially during the pandemic. So, and what I'm trying to do in the documentary is to play with it somehow and make the dogs and cats the narrators in a way, like to share oh, the perspectives on their it. family, on their mothers and fathers. Uh, so yeah, this is, yeah, these are like two of the things that I'm like, working on at the moment i feel like yeah uh yeah uh, Elia, did you just grab a cat i'm gonna put my cat on camera okay. just to like emphasize how um, emotionally vital they are <laughs> but they yeah def they, they definitely are they yeah. definitely are and i mean like i'm sure they saved our lives and i'm sure they save our lives oh every day yeah. And they are definitely reshaping our perceptions of what a family is. This reminds me, this is a tangent, but I think it's a relevant tangent. Is Yesterday it the Pope I saw thing? The Pope thing. Yeah. The Pope like did a speech about, he was like, some people these days are choosing to have dogs and cats instead of children. And it's like, changing our humanity and i was like yeah it is like that's right like, that's the point <laughs> yeah <laughs> but exactly. he, he's saying it like a bad thing yeah we need to imagine a world where human beings are not the central species of attention this is number yeah. one and number two 
we really need to imagine a world where procreation is not, you know what? I wish there would come a day when you tell someone that you are pregnant or like you got a baby. And same as what happens with how people should be respectful of each other's bodies. So when you tell someone that you lost weight or gained weight, they shouldn't be commenting on your body. Mm -hmm. They would, they should be like, how are you feeling about this? So it's like, I want like a day to come when someone tells me that they have a baby and I'd be like, oh, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Like for procreation to be perceived as just something like eating and drinking in a way it's, or like, I know it is not, but I think what I'm trying to say is, isn't it scary how with COVID and everything that happened that many heterosexual people were just obsessed with procreating to save their, like to save their, like, you know, biological. Yeah, their bloodline. I don't know, like, I find it selfish, to be honest. Like, I find it scary and selfish that a world is collapsing, but you are so obsessed with procreation as well as, like, you know, maintaining, not maintaining, um, yeah, maintaining, like, the power of such, like, you know, uh, it's like the achievement that people can come up with during the pandemic and be praised for. Yeah. I made a big yeah, it's like it's I need a, a weird degree. reason to yeah. procreate. Like yeah. if that's if that's your central, your central like motive is like, oh, I I really need to keep my bloodline going, or I need to like do something. Get societal praise, or yeah, which is all real, but enough to like make a whole person exist, you know? Right. Yeah. I'm gonna say it, and I know that maybe some queer people would hate me. I'm just there because I'm like I'm angry. It drives me crazy and makes me angry. How for a heterosexual heteronormative world, for a heterosexual person and a heteronormative world, they just can have everything and get access to everything just by giving birth to a child. And every single thing that they have and that they take for granted equates years and years of queer suffering and struggle. Just the fact that two people, a man and a woman can get married or like be together, live in a house, prove to the the university that they are married, have a family unit, have a child and just get benefits while queer people during the pandemic had to share the same roof with abusive fathers and mothers. Like this massive contrast for me is in itself indicative of the amount of violence that we as queer people have to struggle with that goes unnoticed. Just the fact that people can live their lives simply without having to make a political statement about it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with this. And I'm angry that I went back to California, to Irvine to find the graduate housing full of children, to be honest. And I don't know where my anger is coming, coming from, like I'm rambling now, but I'm really angry because I feel like 
this is not what I signed up for. Because here's the thing, many children in graduate housing, it means that you should not smoke, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't say that. And it's just scary how the US is a country that is as obsessed with the children as the Arab world. If not more. Like the US, in my opinion, is definitely a conservative country in terms of how much weight it puts on family and children. Yeah. And I mean, if that like equated to like materially supporting, you know, like great free public education and child support and that kind and free daycare and that kind of stuff, that that would be a different story as opposed to you're materially on your own with children, but societally we're going to make it the most important thing in your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that like you can both be, if you have a biological child, like as a straight couple, you're both automatically like you are the officially recognized parents and you like are able to make medical decisions on your spouse's behalf if necessary or your child's behalf if necessary. And like queer couples, even queer couples with children don't get that luxury without like fighting and jumping through hoops. Um, Exactly. And this is why, yes, I'm not a huge fan of like gay marriage thing. But at the same time, as a queer person, I definitely know why it is an important fight. And I definitely appreciate and respect it because whatever choices queer people want to make, I would love them to make and have without having to worry about structures that prevent them from having these choices. Mm-hmm. So for me, yeah, this sums it up. Like the fact that we have to fight for every single thing that many people Millions of people take for granted. It is just in itself an indicator of, no, homophobia is not over. It just takes different forms. Transphobia is not over. It just takes different forms. Homophobia nowadays, for example, in a place like Orange County is not like, you know, seeing gay people in the street and like, like, you know, being violent to them. Homophobia in a place like Orange County is basically gay guys looking the same, having the same apps, going to the same gym, speaking the same language, uh, supporting the healthy whatever like lifestyle that is being produced through the media and through like, you know, the whole organic thing. So it's like you get an organic boyfriend, you get organic food, you get organic poop, you get organic everything. And you just and you live in a place that is almost white, that it you know like that has histories of gentrification so yeah so homophobia in a way is that i barely see queer intimacy in the street i miss seeing queer intimacy i don't see i don't see boys holding hands girls holding hands trans people queer people whatever is the spectrum i don't see this we don't see this anymore we see like executive homosexual males who are part and parcel of um, the good citizen. Uh, yeah, like like nation. manufactured the gay. Like citizen. it's the almost straight thing. It's like they're gay. Yeah, it's a straight it's, thing. It's like yeah. it's like they're gay but it's almost like, straight. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like. Well, actually, I just want to add one more thing. I feel like that's sort of pushed forward a lot by when people say, well, I don't mind the gays so long as they don't make it the center of their personality. And you're like, what do 
straight people make being straight the center of their personality. Yeah, like how is it not? There's people who've been like planning their wedding for the last two years. Is that not making straight being straight your whole personality? Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like look at all the romance films yeah. and stuff, like where and I w- the whole plot is just two straight people doing straight shit. And here's the thing. There's something that a professor, like an American professor, professor of sociology at AUC, who's been a mentor for, for me, once said to me something that I really respect. She once told me how she was having a conversation with her family about like, you know, queerness and like how in the past people would be like, well, yeah, they shouldn't have to put it on the table. And then one time she was like, I'm wearing a wedding ring. This is me putting my sexuality on the table. as a heterosexual woman so do not like so how come you you are making it that you're trying to say that like you know yeah you can be queer or gay but do not put it on the table or like do not make be obsessed with it like you definitely are obsessed with heterosexuality you are wearing you are wearing the time literally wearing your sexuality exactly thank you you are wearing your sexuality so true and then, like, also the personality thing. I don't know. People make all kinds of things their personality. People make the personality, like, a, a team in a sport they don't even play. Like, at least, like, I'm the person who's gay, right? Like, I love <laughs> at least it's, it's me. I love queerness <laughs> and gayness to be my personality. I, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't mind. And here's the thing, you know what? Because it's also, like, it's part of, like, you know, the historical gaslighting, you know, like, it is the same, it's sorry, it's a repetition in a way of the old note of like um, saying stuff like, you can be gay, but you just don't have to be this effeminate. You don't have to be this hypersexual. You don't have to be this. You don't have to be that. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. And I'm like, you know what? Like what's I, left? Being like I don't really care to a, prove a blank wall? Yeah, like, I'm, yeah. You think I'm so gay? Oh I'm, my God, I'm so happy. I'm so gay. And I'm so queer. I mean, like, I can't be happier. <laughs> Why would I want to be heterosexual or straight? God forbid. It's boring. Yes. Boring, limited, and um, it comes with a sense of entitlement that blinds you throughout your whole life, makes you feel that you know better and, than everyone else, and think that you've got it all. Just like having to justify who we love something that we've had to struggle with that like straight people don't that we should get more credit for that we should yeah we should get more credit actually for keeping up with straight people for all these years yeah because also like seriously speaking it is not only about like actions and it's not only about words and it's not only about marriage as much as it's about a language of capital and language of resources we are speaking of people who've then favored with services and benefits just for this literally just based on their biological sex or their sexual orientation while there are communities and individuals that have been crushed historically crushed in a way that makes them feel as if they should be grateful when they get one single right and treat it as a victory this is how desperate it is and at the same time, 
how from another perspective an optimistic organizing perspective it just makes me feel that we have a long path of movement building and of organizing to go if we want to walk this way like i'm no longer interested in hearing things like oh we have people queer people have the rights there's nothing to fight for anymore and it's not only about like you know and i don't and I'm also not interested in the sex negativity tone. And I'm not, on, and I'm no longer interested in only speaking about queer death and queer victimization. I am very much interested in a queer reimagination of the world. I'm interested in all the queer worlds that didn't take a chance to exist yet. I love that. Thank you. It was yeah. This has been amazing. Uh, and like, Thank you. So much. Yeah. Are you? Do you have a online presence these days? Like, if people wanted to connect i am on my instagram uh i am back on facebook uh my instagram is tarik t-a-r-e-k dot m dot salama s-a-l-a-m-a i feel like instagram is the better is the best way to connect with me at the moment and i yeah this was so much fun and i didn't have these conversations in a very long while and i've been looking forward to this conversation specifically uh, because yeah, I feel like it is sad, and at the same time, it is very empowering that every day for queer people is a fight day, and it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> yes, yeah, therapy but, is good too, though. If we can, yeah, if yeah. we can, therapy, when we can get it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, therapy is definitely helpful. Therapy is definitely powerful, and. It definitely saves people. But since you said this, Eli, one thing before I forget, also speaking of therapy, just the fact that some queer-friendly therapists in Egypt or in, in the Arab world, literally, I don't think that they live up to, like, what, 5%, 2% of the total number of mental health providers says it all, in my opinion, about what queer people are denied. Yeah, that's so true. Even just that basic getting help for your brain and like you have to jump through even more hoops just to like find someone who will do that with you. When yeah, or you, or you wind up with a therapist who like traumatizes you more. Of yeah. Course, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens pretty often. I've heard countless stories from queer people about that scary stories yeah yeah including people who go to things that are like labeled as queer friendly but then they're just like just not in practice yeah yeah. if if they like if they could even find that right it's like they'll take queer money but not give and i'm sorry if if you are a queer person living with an abusive family and you have some money let's be honest what would you do would you go basically trying to forget that you live with this family or go seek therapy. Most likely people would spend it on anything other than therapy and it makes a perfect sense, but it's a very sad Choice thing. To have and to they are not, of course, to be blamed. What is to be blamed is the system who make them feel as that they have to make these choices between, that they have to choose between therapy and their basic everyday needs. And we saw that, I mean, we talked at the beginning, we talked about Sarah Hagazi and like, that was what was happening in Canada. Like, 
she she had to make these choices about like where what resources she could access and like because both were not accessible to her yeah Sora went to Canada seeking healing and seeking a better life but when and this is something that I know is that definitely her mom's death tore her apart her mom's death definitely made her feel like what have I done and what am I doing here I I, I received like I talked to many of my friends who are like um, in Canada or like other queer friends, Egyptian queer friends who are in different diasporic destinations. And it would happen often that one of them would be like, I have no idea what the fuck am I doing in this country? What am I doing here? So also this, so in a way it is also extremely sad that this assumption or romantic assumption that a diaspora by that leaving or like that diaspora uh, makes you heal can also be very tricky and very misleading because it takes more than your willingness to heal. Like I'm sure that Sarah was willing to heal, but I'm sorry, this world killed her. Killed her. Yeah, it did. And, and she didn't have the support that she deserved. Like she didn't have the mental health resources she deserved during crises that she was going through. I don't think that Sarah even could access a therapist who would be both queer friendly and be able to speak Arabic because Sarah was not, Sarah was a local intellectual, Sarah was an intellectual, Sarah was a thinker, Sarah was an activist, Sarah was a feminist, Sarah was a middle class Egyptian woman who went through different stages of her life to learn and to fight for something that she had faith in and she was a very noble person but why that so what i'm trying to say is sara was rooted in egypt and when you take someone like sara out of her roots if there is no environment that could provide an alternative for her was all the traumas and the mental illness that she had to struggle with it is hard for me to accept that this was a choice that this was her choice. Of course it was, like, I'm not depriving my friend of her agency to end her own life. But what I'm trying to say as queer people, we know very well that our friends maybe didn't, that if our friends had at least two or three other choices, more choices, maybe they would have made a different decision. Maybe they would have decided to stay. But what I know for sure is that her death is never in vain and what never, never will be. She was always remembered and will always be. And and we will get her, we have like um, House of Titi has access or like now has access to her uh, diaries from the prison. But because, yeah, like I I have them personally, but like, I'm still in conversation with the other people who have access to the diaries about what to do with them, with the diaries, but definitely they will be translated and definitely they will be made accessible for uh, as many queer people as possible. Well, thank you. This was an amazing yeah, conversation. Coming uh, back again. Thank you so much, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you. Me and too. I really, yeah, I missed you. I missed yeah, you a lot. Yeah, I missed so. you too. I can't deal with like 
the passage of time lately. Me neither. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs, and our email is thequeerarabs at gmail.com, and our website is thequeerarabs.com. Thanks all. Mm-hmm.